In November of 2004, a man named Chris Young was both drunk and high. He went into a mini-mart and shot the owner of the mini-mart, a guy named Hazmek Patel. And so Chris Young goes to trial pretty soon afterwards. He's found guilty and is sentenced to death. They're going to perform the death penalty on him. Patel's children at the time were in favor of this verdict. They believed that this would bring about justice, that this would make things right. Uh, everyone in the case believed that this would lead to justice, that justice would be served. Over time, however, Patel's children began advocating for Young not to receive the death penalty. The rationale is he has three children and they have lost a father, so they know what that's like. So for his children, he should not uh, be sentenced to death. There are tons of appeals. It goes through the system. There are three or four appeals. They get the legal limit of appeals, and they lose in every single case. In Young's final statement this past Tuesday, he said that he wants for Patel's children to know that he loves them the same way that they love him. There was a big statement going around uh, before, he was, uh, before the death penalty uh, was, happened. And said so politicians in Texas talk all the time about justice for the victims, but it's nothing more than talk. There was no justice here for Patel's family. The Patel family's wishes were ignored. And this is unacceptable. I don't know where you stand on the death penalty, I'm not gonna ask you that, but the question raises, this whole scenario raises is, was justice served? Is this just? You may remember this other sentence, this other case as well. In 2013, June 15, 2013, 16-year-old Ethan Couch and some friends went to Walmart, and when they were in Walmart, they stole some cases of beer. 16-year-olds making a bad decision because they were going to take this beer to a party. So about an hour later, after they've been at the party drinking the beer, Couch is driving 70 miles per hour in a 40-mile-per-hour zone, and he strikes an SUV that was stranded on the side of the road and kills four people, paralyzes one of his own passengers. His blood alcohol level was 0.24 which is three times higher than the legal limit, but remember, he was 16, so the legal limit for him was zero. It was three times. He was 16, tested positive for marijuana and Valium. So when the trial goes to court, the defense brings in a psychologist who argues that Couch suffered from affluenza was able to link his actions with consequences, and was unable to link his own actions with consequences because his parents hadn't done a good job of teaching him that wealth buys privilege. The prosecution sought a 20-year prison sentence, and he received no jail time and 10 years probation. Husband and father of one of the victims said there are absolutely no consequences for what occurred that day. The primary message is that money and privilege can buy justice in this country. Those are two 
court cases that, had, that spawned from very significant crimes. And our culture seems to be obsessed with justice. Our culture talks about justice all the time. And usually when we talk about justice, not only, but usually when we talk about justice, what we are often talking about is punishment. What is the punishment for messing up? What is the punishment for doing wrong? Because we judge that punishing inappropriate behavior brings about justice. The guilty should be punished. If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 2. So the story goes like this. Jesus comes to the temple early in the morning. It's something that he does. It's something that's normal for him. He comes to the temple early in the morning. And as he shows up, people start coming to him and surrounding him. So he does what Jesus does. He teaches them. He's in the middle of teaching this crowd that's gathered around him, that's come specifically to hear him speak, when the scribes and Pharisees bring out a woman. They parade her out in front of the crowd, and they say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. The law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? The scribes were teachers of the law. That's what they did. When you hear scribes, it's talking about the people who knew the law back and forth. They wrote it down, which is what we often think of when we think of scribes, but they were also the experts in the law. And they saw Jesus as a competing teacher. So they came up with this foolproof plan to get rid of him. That's what they want. They want to get rid of Jesus. They concoct this scenario for how they are going to trap Jesus. It goes like this. Either Jesus will be faithful to the law, or he will ignore the law. Those are the two options. Either he will be faithful, or he will ignore. If he is faithful to the law, he will be guilty of murder, and Rome will get rid of him. If you think back to the crucifixion of Jesus, they're not able just to crucify him. They have to take him to the Roman authorities. And these people are already holding the rocks because they're ready to stone this woman. On the other hand, if he ignores the law, he gets to lose all moral credibility and authority with these people he's teaching. Either the scribes win or Jesus loses. Either he chooses justice or he chooses injustice. We're in week three of this either-or series, this either-or series, recognizing that sometimes we get caught up in thinking in binary ways. Either it's this or it's this. There's only two options, and maybe we need to challenge that a little bit. Maybe Jesus challenges that. Two weeks ago, we started with the the story of the man born blind, and Patrick was talking about how how these people were just asking the simple question, whose sin caused this? Was it his or was it his parents? And Jesus says, that's a stupid question. (laughs) And it is. Jesus challenged their way of seeing the world. 
This past week, Patrick was talking about the story of Zacchaeus and how it's, we get into this heroes versus villains mentality. And of course, we're the heroes always. But Jesus challenges that way of seeing the world. We have those sermons available if you want to go back and listen. But I was thinking about either or scenarios this week. I was getting ready for this sermon, thinking about the text and thinking about the way that we see this in the world around us. And it just so happens that as I was thinking about this, I was running on a treadmill and Sports Center was on in the background at the gym, and I began watching them talk about the Miami Dolphins, right? So not a Miami Dolphins fan, but the big thing came out that the Miami Dolphins were going to suspend players for four games if they knelt during the national anthem. All right? So the players have been saying from the beginning that they are protesting systemic injustice against African Americans. They are presenting a scenario in which players who stand for the national anthem stand for systemic injustice. Players who kneel during the national anthem are against injustice. On the other hand, you have the owners, you have the president, you have different people who have spoken up about this and they're presenting another binary way of seeing this. It's not justice or injustice. For them, it's either you're patriotic and you stand for the anthem, or you're anti-American and you kneel for the anthem. There's not going to be a solution to what's going on, and the reason being because they're not talking about the same things. They're insisting that their binary way, their either-or scenario, is the right way to see this. But when we look at Jesus, what we see over and over again is that when these either-or scenarios show up, Jesus is working outside of them. And in this story that we're looking at today, Jesus is presented with an either-or scenario. It's either justice or injustice, and Jesus does not respond to that. John chapter 8, verse 6. They asked him this to trap him in order that they may have evidence to accuse him. So Jesus stooped down after having been asked this question. Jesus' response is to stoop down and start writing on the ground with his finger. There's been a lot of speculation through the years about what he was writing. There's some really wild ideas about what he was writing. You don't know. So these people see Jesus stoop down and start riding in the dirt. So they keep asking him the question. And he stands up and says to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one starting with the older man, older men, and only Jesus was left with the woman in the center. They present Jesus with this either justice or injustice, either faithful to the law or ignore the law, and Jesus was working outside that framework. Jesus' whole perspective is not whether this is just or unjust. Jesus' whole perspective isn't whether this is right or wrong. Jesus is focused on this woman, which changes it entirely. He refuses to debate the issue on the terms dictated by the teachers. 
He recognizes there is no question whether or not this woman is guilty. He knows that. He does not ask, is this really what happened? He does not argue that she's really a good person who made a bad decision. She is guilty. She was caught. She was found out. She has no defense. And if Jesus agreed to work under this either-or justice-injustice framework, she would be condemned. I was thinking about this a lot this week, and the truth of the matter is that any one of us could have been paraded out there. If Jesus looked at us through that binary lens, we would be completely guilty as well. I think we know that. It's maybe not of adultery, but of sin of some shape and form. Because we all sin. We're all broken. We all recognize it. When we, when we actually take the time to look at ourselves, we know that's the case. These scribes could have pulled me out there and pointed out my sin. They could have pointed out my shortcomings, my flaws, my unfaithfulness to God. And before Jesus, I would have stood as condemned as anyone. But I want to say this, and I want you to hear this, because I I think this is the heart of Jesus. Jesus' goal as the light of the world, as God in the flesh, as Messiah and Savior of the world, is not justice. That is not the goal of Jesus, particularly the type of justice that we've been talking about. If justice is what Jesus came for, I should be hanging on the cross, not him. You should be hanging on the cross if justice is what Jesus came for. In John chapter 3, verse 17, we learn that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The heart of Jesus is not justice. So we continue in John chapter 8. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Church, I don't believe that Jesus' goal as Son of God as God in the flesh, as Savior of the world, was justice. I believe that Jesus' goal is redemption. I think Scripture attests to this over and over again. And when we see the story of Jesus, when we see the life of Jesus, we see a God who is not interested in punishing us, but who is interested in redeeming us. Now, redemption involves justice. It involves judgment. The first thing Jesus does is tells her, I don't condemn you. He recognizes her sin, but he does not condemn. He has mercy. He forgives, and he calls her to repentance. I think we take it too far sometimes when we don't believe that Jesus takes sin seriously. Jesus takes it so seriously that he recognizes he's the only one that can do anything about it. He judges her sin. He has mercy on her. He forgives her of her sin, and he calls her to repentance, 
to life change, to go and sin no more, to live in the world in a new way, a redeemed way. Because that's what Jesus came to offer. Redemption is life in light of Jesus. In John chapter 10, verse 10, he continues, I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. Condemnation does not lead to life. Redemption is life. Redemption is the hope of life. It is the chance of life. The scribes wanted Jesus to look at this woman and either condemn her, which would have been justice, or just ignore her sin to pardon her, which would have been injustice. But justice versus injustice is a false premise to begin with. Jesus was working toward her redemption. Jesus wants to change her life, to give it meaning and purpose and value. And he knows that there is no redemption without mercy. There is no redemption without judgment. It's not merciful to ignore her sin. It's not just for the crowd to condemn her while they stand guilty as well. Redemption has a justice component in so much as we see that justice is about making things right. But justice with Jesus is not punitive. Jesus is not seeking to condemn us. He died on the cross for us. He suffered unjustly for crimes we committed and forgives those who put our hope in him. There is nothing punitive about redemption. So the question for us becomes this. The place where this hits home for us is here. What if we, as disciples of Jesus, were seeking redemption instead of punitive justice? What if we, as disciples of Jesus, were seeking redemption instead of punitive justice? I want to tell you some more about Chris Young, who I mentioned to begin with. After sobering up, after being in prison for a couple years, he began talking with at-risk youth. He started a prison ministry about the dangers of gang violence, of the road that they're going down, and he's helped a lot of people get out of gangs, get out of situations that they didn't understand fully. He had three daughters whom he developed close relationships with and encouraged to live a life better than he did. He got to know the family of the person that he killed. He sought forgiveness and was forgiven and received and gave love. Church, is that redemption? I have a friend who called me this week, a friend that's a cop, uh, and he was struggling with some things that he's had to do recently, and, and he told me, he said, Jordan, I... I is it wrong that I'm beginning to hate homeless people? I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely it's wrong. Uh, he sees the same homeless people every week. And he has to arrest them, has to send them to jail. He's treat, he has to engage with them in a particular way. And he wasn't justifying his actions as much as he was lamenting them. It made me think of some other friends that I have. I have some other friends in the same area who started a Housing First initiative. And what that is is they create homes, and when they find homeless people, they give them a home. 
immediately. They don't make them go through a whole process to get there. They have to agree to certain things, but they don't have to go through a whole process. And what they found is that when you give homeless people a home to live in and offer them services, they're much more likely to get on their feet than when you arrest them. So church, which one of those scenarios is going to lead people's lives to being redeemed? One of those is looking at how Jesus redeems the world. The other one's looking at punitive justice. I look at my own life and I recognize some places that Jesus is redeeming. There are some relationships in which God is calling me to forgive someone. Not to make light of the harm that they have done, but to exhibit the power of God in my life. That God's power is sufficient to forgive someone, and it's part of the work of redemption going on in me. I have some thought patterns. If you remember the last sermon series about the mind of Christ, that's something that's been hitting home for me for years now. I have some ways that I view the world and view people that God is calling me to give up in favor of the ways that he views people. God is not condemning me. He is shaping me and transforming me and most importantly, redeeming me. And I think if you look at your own lives, you will see similar ways that God is at work. When Jesus exposes us to the nature of God, it is not to condemn us. It's not to punishment. It's not so that we have this punitive justice. It's so that we can be redeemed. So church, what needs redeemed? You know, maybe it's some relationships. Maybe some healing needs to happen. Maybe it's some broken marriages where, where things are just tough. Maybe it's distant children or estranged friendships. All those things, we have a God who not only isn't going to punish us for those things, but wants to redeem us from those things. Maybe it's your way of seeing the world. Maybe it's your way of seeing people that God is seeking to redeem. Maybe it's some of your practices that your actions don't align with your faith. In all of those ways, and in so many more, Jesus is saying, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Church, we have this beautiful opportunity to stop thinking in terms of justice and injustice and start seeing that we have a God who redeems. Let's hold on to that image. Let's live into that reality and see what God can do. Let's pray. God, you are so much better than we can imagine. Your goodness is more than we can fathom. In the life of Jesus, we see these, these significant moments where, where the option for punishment, the option for condemnation was there, and, and you chose to redeem. God, you, you're so good. Help us to recognize that. Help us to live into that. Help us to know that you are for us, not against us, that you love us and seek to redeem us. God, help us to submit to you, to your power, and allow you to do that work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You're all dismissed.